Medicaid is a government-funded, comprehensive health insurance program that covers about 3.9 million people in Illinois, including low-income adults, children, pregnant women, and people with disabilities. Medicaid plays a pivotal role in extending health coverage to those who might otherwise struggle to afford insurance. It stands as a beacon, ensuring that a substantial portion of our population can access essential healthcare services. However, as we delve into our conversation, we must ask a critical question. What happens when a program designed to serve our communities falls short on its promise? In the latest installment of the HC3 podcast, we had the incredible honor of conversing with a figure we have dubbed the Patriarch of Medicaid, Doug Elwell, currently at the helm of HMA Health Management Associates, a prominent healthcare consulting and research firm in the U.S. Doug's extensive background spans various roles in both the public and private sectors. With a deep passion and personal experiences driving his endeavors, Doug is actively contributing to transformative thinking in the healthcare realm. This is the HC3 Podcast. We're your hosts, David Smith and Megan Phillips. This episode of the HC3 podcast is sponsored by HC3's managing entity, Third Horizon Strategies. Third Horizon Strategies is a consulting firm focused on shaping a future system that actualizes a sustainable culture of health nationwide. The firm offers a 360-degree view of complex challenges across three horizons, past, present, and future. To help industry leaders and policymakers interpret signals and trends, design integrated systems, and enact changes that all communities, families, and individuals can thrive. With staff located in 10 states across the U.S., Third Horizon Strategies is available to support organizations with services ranging from strategic planning, program implementation, research, and data analytics. Learn more about who we are and what we do at thirdhorizonstrategies.com. So I'm going to make an opening statement, Doug, that I know you well enough to know it's going to make you blush or it's going to make you uncomfortable. I don't know if you blush. I've never seen you I blush. I don't blush. I'll just be uncomfortable. Okay. All right. Well, I'll go with uncomfortable. There are three or four people in the last five years, I think, since the first time I met you who have described you as the smartest man on Medicaid in the state of Illinois. I don't know if that means there's a smarter woman out there. There probably there probably is. Several. But people, people generally in this community, they know you, they're familiar with your leadership, they know your expertise, and you've been involved in Illinois public health and Medicaid for a long time. So I wanna take a big step back to the beginning, baby teenage Doug Elwell. How did you get from there to here? And obviously we don't have to go through every nook and cranny of that, but what kind of motivated you to jump into the space? How did you settle in kind of public health safety net domains? And looking back now, after having a really great career that you're still in the midst of, how do you feel about the way your career's gone? So I started out, I had a brother who was uh, handicapped, had several surgeries, he had tetralogy of flow, so he had several surgeries before he was 12 years old, had a stroke, was paralyzed in part of his body. So I saw the system from that perspective. My dad was a veteran, so a lot of that happened through the veterans program, became a public accountant, and uh, some of my clients were SEC clients and some of my clients were healthcare. The healthcare ones were a little bit more, in, not, they weren't really more interesting, 
But what I saw is on the SEC side, I literally had people say, well, the way you get a promotion here is somebody dies and then you can get their job, but you have to wait for them to die. And on the healthcare side, I saw huge opportunities. The other thing that I guess is part of my background is I didn't grow up wealthy. I was very fortunate. I had two parents, but I saw a lot of struggle and, and, and suffering that I didn't think had to be there. And I thought there were different ways to do this. And I had the good fortune of working in inner city Houston. And then I worked in inner city Detroit and then hmm. um, worked before I came to Indiana. And, and I saw that we could do better. And I saw that people actually want to do better. People in the healthcare system want to do better. And early on in my career, when I had the opportunity to be in leadership, I just told people, look, you know what? You're never going to get in trouble for violating the rules. You're going to get in trouble for following the rules and hurting somebody. So that's how we're going to operate everything. People responded to that well because they were forced to do things because we have so many rules in healthcare that just were not good for people. And they could tell it, but they were like, this is the rule. I don't want to be in trouble. So I did that and I had an opportunity. Somebody came to see me and said, well, we'd like you to run the public system in Indiana, in, at Marion County. It was a really weird conversation. The individual was a, a diehard, very conservative Republican, and yet he had done more for the public system than anyone else. And he was an, a unique individual that actually decided he needed to learn more. So he talked the med school into letting him audit courses in the med school, <laughs> you no know? Kidding. So very interesting guy. I like um, this guy, that's cool. Yeah. He was a very honest guy, which disturbed people because he would say, look, the only people who can really do something for the public system in here are the Republicans. Because if the Democrats try to do it, we're going to criticize the crap out of them and not let them do it. But if we're in charge, then we're kind of forced to do a, a better job. Yeah. And because it's it's our the opposite party's natural constituency, they're not going to oppose us as much. And so we can get a lot more done. So I had that opportunity. And then, you know, I, I had the opportunity. I When I went to HMA, I always felt like I hadn't finished public service. I kind of left early. And part of that was changing a political situation, started my own business, had a very sick daughter um, who, who was adopted. So we weren't able to do bone marrow transplants and she had a, a, a bad cancer. She survived. But I was interested in, in continuing going back to doing this. One thing to advise people about how they can do things. But if you're not the one who takes the risk, because anything you're trying to do the right thing, there's a, a level of risk in it because you're going countercultural to what everyone else does. And, and so you, it's hard sometimes to say, David, take a risk. This is really the right thing to do. When I get to go home and I just charged you for that and you've got to figure out how you're going to live with it. So I had a good opportunity as, as a consultant. I worked heavily in Medicaid, and then I worked in a number of their other divisions. Then I had the chance to go to, um, I'd, I'd had opportunities to go to work in other public systems when I came to Cook to work with Jay Shannon um, as deputy CEO for finance and strategy. And, and Cook had, like a lot of public hospitals, Cook had been a little bit of an island. Public hospitals sometimes become an island, and they have, well, my mission is that, quite frankly, a lot of hospitals. You go to a Catholic hospital, yeah. we're the good guys, go to the other ones, well, we're the smart guys, we're this, we're that. And really, everyone's trying to do the right thing. And everyone forgets that the patients who come to them from another hospital, they're the few that are unhappy. Well, we don't think that way. We think they treat everyone like that. And it's kind of like, well, that's the, that makes us feel better. Anyway, I had that opportunity and, and it came at the right time. Previously, Matt Powers, an associate and a former Medicaid director here, had helped the county go and get a waiver before the ACA. So they started the expansion a year before the ACA became law. And they did a remarkable job. In fact, the federal government actually came to talk to us because they signed up 100,000 people in the first year all by themselves. Now, they had some unique ways of doing that, but they became powerful in that area. And we learned a lot of things. One of the things we learned at 
we expected we're going to find all this untreated cancer. That's who we're going to get. We're going to all these untreated right. other things. What we found is I think four out of the 10 top diagnoses were substance use disorder, mental illness disorders, that that was really what was untreated. And when you think about it, it makes sense. If I'm a single adult and I don't have a good job, I don't quite qualify for Medicaid, but I don't have enough money to have insurance, I probably have some mental health issues. That's a really prevalent thing. And so we found that, which then challenged us as to, okay, what's going on in the mental health arena? Because Cook County did not have an inpatient unit for behavioral health. It was not an area they'd ever gone into. They got into everything else. They had outpatient psychiatry, but they really weren't a robust player in that field. And then looking at it, we kind of early on said, you know what, this isn't our expertise. There's a whole bunch of people who are experts, but everyone's doing their own thing and people move around. So if they move from where this mental provider is doing the work, it may have one way, then they move over here, they start over, and then they start over, and they start over. And that doesn't make any sense. So we early on said, well, let's get the behavioral health people together. Let's see if we can support them in some way. We had hoped to maybe eventually get common billing system, some back room, because a lot of them, the issue was they really couldn't afford to have, you know, there were very few superstars in behavioral health billing. And they, and if you watch them, you see, okay, I can see there's three of them and they keep upping, you know, I'll give it 10,000 more, Dave, but if you come over and help me, you're there for a year. Somebody says, I'll give you another 5,000 if you come over here. And they're moving around because they've got to take care of their family. But then everyone kind of falls off again. So what's what's the backstory of how, I don't know if I've ever asked you this, Doug. So I'm hoping it's a great story. If it's not a great story, make up a great story. <laughs> how, how did you end up at HFS? What was the transition from cook into government? And, and that particular job, it's a big job. So at the time, new governor, he asked Teresa Eagleson to take the top spot. Teresa was a good friend. She'd been a good friend to, to helping work with us. And Cook always needs a friend at Medicaid. Now, Medicaid always needs a friend at Cook because yeah. combined, they can just get a lot of things accomplished. And they historically have done a lot of really great things. So it kind of was a natural progression to say, well, that would actually still be good for Cook if I went there. Maybe I could be more effective doing that. And Teresa asked me, and I, and I told her at the time I was close to retirement and said, okay, I'll do one year. I did exactly one year. Um, it's not right. I yeah, thought you to were the in day. that spot <laughs> to the day. To the day. Did she, did she have like one of those paper chain link things and was ripping one off every day? No, like, did she, she was, know the countdown was happening or was she surprised when you no, said, I told hey, her, it's been a year to the day? No, I told her a day. We talked about it. I think she thought she could convince me. And they, they did make an effort. But at the time, there were just some things where HFS has an incredibly dedicated staff. A lot of people have been there a lot of years. Unbelievable work ethic. Really difficult decisions. But the legislature, quite honestly, wasn't always that supportive. And for me, at that point in my career, it was kind of like, I want to fix problems. I don't want to ignore problems. And I didn't feel like we were fixing them at the rate we could. And I wasn't as resilient as I had been when I was younger. So if I'd been 10 years younger, I'd probably still be there. If I had known the pandemic was going to come, because I left a mm. couple of days before the pandemic, it's a pandemic. It's not just somebody's sick. If I'd have known that, I'd have stayed because really? I wouldn't have I wouldn't have wanted to leave the people at work because that just increased the workload and, and stopped almost everything else. And I would have I would have stayed there. But I had the opportunity. HMA asked me to come back. I'd been with them for 12 years prior to this. And, and I thought, well, I could come back and I could help some of the things I saw at HMA that were that were changing as it was growing. So that's why I left. But why I went there is a tremendous colleague who I think is probably one of the smartest people and one of the most dedicated people to figuring out how do we solve these problems? How do we get more equity into this equation? How do we do better in our inner cities? How do we get rid of the disparities? Not just in the inner city. She also understood the other place in Illinois we have huge disparities is in rural, the rural community. We have a lot of poverty in the rural community. 
very difficult getting healthcare providers into the rural community. And, and so she saw both of that based on where she, where she grew up and what she did. And, and she was a, a tremendous leader and brought in a lot of people. But there were a lot of really solid people that have spent their whole career there. There's so much there I want to unpack. Let's just jump back for a second to that transition into HFS. And you're looking at it and you're saying, I'll do it, but I'm going to give you a year to the day. You know the system well enough to know there's only so much you can do in government in the span of a year. And I know you're a pragmatic enough guy that you didn't go in thinking you were going to fix the system. But I also know about you. You probably said, well, if I could do these two or three things, then whoever succeeds me is going to have a strong place to do some some more things. What were you hoping to accomplish in that year? And how do you feel like that? And what got in the way? Well, a couple things I was hoping to accomplish. So let's start with managed care. You know, managed care, there was a lot of noise, there continues to be a lot of noise in managed care of providers claiming, oh, it's managed care that's destroying my business. I'm going out of business and the state needs to do something, blah, blah, blah. And managed care was doing some bad things. On the other hand, there were outright lies being told and there was other things. So we organized early on, we organized meetings, you know, on Mondays, we made all the the CEOs of all the MCOs had to come in. Every Monday, it's been eight hours. And we brought each provider group in to go through the issues. Now, the thing we required of the providers, as we said, we want specific issues. We want to know the specific company and we want to know the cases because what we were getting was the, the they're all bad. It's kind of like, well, then give us the examples. And many times when they said they're all bad, they, it would turn out they had problems with one and it was really specific. And you'd go through it and you'd find out. Sometimes you'd find out the provider was wrong. Often you found out, yeah, that MCO had a problem in their logic for paying claims. And when we forced them to actually pull the claim out and then we forced the MCO to go back and say, I wanna know what happened with that claim. We got a lot of MCOs who said, okay, we'll rerun the claims, Mm. this was wrong. I know that one of the MCOs cost them $33 million that year of having to rerun claims and that they should have paid and didn't pay. We also found some things on the other side where we had one hospital who was talking about a really high denial rate. When we broke it all down, they were actually sending Medicare claims into the Medicaid MCO and counting them as denials. And we confronted them and said, those aren't even Medicaid claims. They said, it's still a denial, they didn't pay us. You're like, well, okay, now we understand why you're saying you've got 30 some percent denial. When we're looking around, it looks like eight for everybody else. You're, you know, you're doing that. We had one safety net hospital who wouldn't, who would say, I'll never go public, but our denial rate's less than 1%. At the height of everyone saying it was, uh, he, he just said, I'm not going to tell anybody because it, it kill, kind of defeats the issue. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> yeah, but he's got, but he really did it. And in a few cases, we found that the state has a very old mainframe system. And so we found that our mainframe wasn't able to do some of the things in adjudicating claims we thought it was. So we had been paying claims we shouldn't have. What happened was then the managed care companies came in and they didn't pay those claims. So again, people were like, these are denials. These are unfair. The state always pays these. We look into it. We said, okay, you're right. We always paid them. We shouldn't have been paying them. We're going to try to fix our system so we don't pay them either. But these are federalized, you know, the bundling law. We didn't have the bundling right. So people are sometimes getting paid on individual things that should have been bundled together. Well, the managed care companies, their systems were set up to handle that. So that was a denial, but it was actually the right denial. So it it was on both sides, but the goal there really was if we could cut out the noise, we thought there was a lot that could be accomplished by managed care. We thought if we could get outside the fee for service rules and actually do what people needed, 
that that would be the big win with managed care. And so people before me had done all the work of getting managed care going. I was hopeful that people after me, if we could get rid of all the noise and just have people sit down and say, how do we make this system work better? When we don't have the Fed or the state, we're stuck in a fee-for-service system. And by the Feds, I mean, we were doing some waivers, we were doing some good things, but the Feds in that fee-for-service system, there were a lot of rules you just couldn't get around. The managed care companies could get around those, we believed. If we could get the noise out and get everyone concentrated on, let's make the system work better for people. The other thing I was concerned with was we were warehousing people in nursing homes. We had a lot of people with behavioral health issues that were in nursing homes. They were put there because we didn't really have another place to put them, but they got to the point where they were above 50% of the population, which makes you an institute for mental disease and no longer qualifies you to be paid by Medicaid. And really for people with mental illness who could stay in the community, I mean, creating, putting people in an institution, whatever the institution is, creates a level of dependency and it makes people feel like that's where I'm safe, that's where I need to be, when really with some assistance, they could stay in the community. And a big difference for them, big difference in their life. And, and overall, we believe would be less costly for the state to be able to keep open the community and give them an opportunity to work and to do right. other things Having and be the with their families and, and do those things. And so that's, that's something I wasn't able to accomplish as much as I would have liked to. But I do think overall the quality of nursing homes, I mean, Teresa Eagleson got landmark legislation passed that I think will over time really improve the quality of what's going on in nursing homes. So I, again, I wasn't part of that. Teresa figured it out and got it done after I left. Doug, if we, and, and I know we have a common vernacular on what health is and isn't, and we know health is not broken bones or acute you know, debilitating disease. We know health is the sum of, of everything that allows or disallows a person to achieve their their full potential as a human being, right? So that's everything that happens in this complex organ between our ears. It's the stuff that shows up and manifests out around us, you know, from the time we're born to the time we die. I've always been confused about how a state like Illinois, who who is progressive and thoughtful, and albeit we've had some political challenges, you know, over the decades, but how we have partitioned so many important functions that pertain to, to creating circumstances that promote health across the state government. And I don't know how this stacks up, and maybe you, you have a better sense than I do. I don't know how this stacks up across other states, but but here it's like you, you have to coordinate with so many different agencies in service of a single family or single individual. And yes, we've got funding challenges and yes, we have workforce challenges, but it feels like one of the most self-defeating challenges we have is we are bureaucratically complex. We are administratively heavy. And it seems to me as an outside observer, having not worked in government, that that has to be creating massive inefficiencies that are costly to the state, costly to the taxpayer, most importantly, costly to the communities those two things are, mm -hmm. are serving. How far on or off track am I with that observation? No, I think you're right on track. And I think it's challenging everywhere. And there are a lot of the solutions to the problems are not medical. So Medicaid is a medical program, if you think about it. That's how the Fed set it up. Now, the feds are starting to allow waivers that's making it less of a medical program, but it was always initially a medical program. That makes it really difficult. That makes the whole idea of some of the things you do in home and community-based services are foreign to a medical type thing. They're done by waivers. And to be perfectly honest, our MCOs across the country don't understand skilled nursing very well. Mm -hmm. They don't understand home and community-based services very well. They just don't get it. They don't understand mental health and addiction right. very well. No, because they're, they are primarily the medical model. 
They came right. in to do Medicaid. It's a medical model. And it doesn't neatly fit in claims files, um, which is the other problem. And that's the whole idea of trying to get away from the fee-for-service mentality into a more holistic approach. And and part of this is, here's where the, the rubber, and it's on the provider's side, it's on state side, it's on everyone's side, is, is we seldom want to share. So I would tell you that investments made in behavioral health sometimes pay off 10 times in physical health. And so the issue, though, is the physical health guys aren't giving money back. So, and it's no different than if we go and find great interventions for people that keep people either out of jail or keep them healthy when they're in jail, a lot of them on the mental health and substance use disorder side, the sheriff does not want to give money back. And this is, again, I'm not talking about Illinois, I'm talking about everywhere. So suddenly you have providers stepping up doing the right thing, but if the sheriff doesn't give money back, there is no money there because the money is still going to the sheriff, even though the population in the jails are smaller. So there's this there's competing type of a thing going on. And inside a state, the other problem is you do have kingdoms. It's like everything else. So if I'm king of behavioral health, I don't want to talk to the Medicaid yeah. if I don't have to. And on the other hand, and I'm reinforced by my providers who say, I hate Medicaid. It's got all these accountability rules. I'd rather get a grant because you don't even always know how many people I served or you know, so I want to work on that side with you. And it's easier to dominate a smaller agency than it is to dominate Medicaid. So what's interesting is going back to your earliest comment of rule breaking and the purpose of that. And it's really interesting because I think we're at this inflection point with a lot of our social service and community based organizations where they are running up against sustainability challenges. So to your point, there are a lot of grants, especially around really critical issues like violence and maternal child health. And these are great to experiment and show the business case and the opportunity to your point about how much we save and actually improve health when we're dealing with mental health. And these are issues as well. So I'm curious where you think we need to break the rules currently because I think there is a push for Medicaid to become beyond medical and medical is a very traditional term that is now evolving as we think about what social determinants of health are in that ecosystem. Providers are rethinking everyone I think is open and being realistic, especially in this post-pandemic time when we're like everybody experienced that. Everybody has experienced a collective trauma and what does that look like for each and every one of us? So I've just shared a lot, but I, I'm just curious, how do we break the rules and what are the mechanisms that could take place to create more opportunities to fund community health workers or reimbursement for things that we know can create this better net that really connects the dots and it isn't so government versus the providers versus the community-based organizations and create more connectivity? Well, I'd say a couple of things about that. Sometimes there's a lot of selfishness, period. So there's a lot of times when somebody says, you know, I should be sustained and they got a lousy business model. And quite frankly, they shouldn't be sustained. They're eating up a ton of money and actually not providing that much service. So giving them more money doesn't necessarily mean you get more service from it. Some of it is we also think we know things, community health workers. Okay, I happen to believe in community health workers, but you know what? There's not a lot of evidence that says there's a break-even point there. I see amounts where people are saying they want to spend on community health workers, and you say that's larger than the premium for all the care. Well, yeah, and show so. us how that model <laughs> integrates with a broader model that makes it sustainable, and that's the thing nobody's 
right done. And, and that's the critical that was one of the things for transformation was we're going to give you this money for five years if you build a model then but you need to be talking to the managed care plans because they need to be able to track yeah. it and say you know what you're right that actually reduced the cost now we're going to pick up that and do that so the transformation was very specific about five years because it said we're going to give you the opportunity to figure out what works and what doesn't so that it becomes sustainable by the next group coming in and saying there's clear evidence now this goes in we know that stable housing for a behavioral health stable housing is huge reduces the cost hugely if and, and it makes sense if i'm worried about where i'm sleeping tonight guess what you're not doing much uh, else yeah and i there's a lot of pressure yeah on me and that's going to make me do things that people don't know if i'm not eating if i'm worried about a meal there's a lot of things that go on that i mean we're seeing a lot of things you know uh, you know i i know this in florida there's a company that started out they start out delivering meals to older populations that's what they that's all they did they started noticing that you know what I can tell Mrs. Smith, she's a little yellow today. I need to talk to somebody because maybe no one else did, but she's not looking so good. And they started making connections back to, in some cases, it was a managed care company. In some cases, it was a nursing group. But they they started, they now are a huge managed care company because they someday woke up and said, well, food's the key. And these other guys aren't doing that much. We can figure out what they do. Food's the key. And we found it at Cook County. A lot of people came who had surgery and got readmitted. The problem was they had bad nutrition when they went home. They hadn't shopped. They didn't have anyone at home that they were living with and there was no food and they weren't in good enough shape to go out and get food. And guess what? They got sicker and sicker and then they were back in. It wasn't that the surgery was done poorly. It was they had a nutritional problem. And boom, you start having meals delivered to them for a couple of weeks. And guess what? They did better. They didn't come back in. There was no readmission. So it's bringing everything together. And we always want to complain that the healthcare system spends too much money compared to all the other countries. What no one wants to talk about is the other countries spend way more money than we do on social services. So we've just combined it all and said, you know, the medical system will have to take care of everything. Other countries have said they're putting huge dollars into social services to control that piece of it. We don't do that. So we need to get over ourselves in terms of comparing those types of things and sit down and say, let's design something that makes sense. But I see a lot of providers who come in and they do a certain thing. And you know, I've sat down with them. And in mental health, you have a gamut of people. You have people who are at the SMI stage. They have people who need a little bit of help and who, quite frankly, will resist getting too much help. And so part of it is, you know, I've had sit down and prior tell me, it's 1800 bucks a month. And I said, well, this guy only needs to be seen like a half hour, you know, four times. If you stop by his house, make sure he's taking a shower and, and going to work, he'll be fine for 1800 bucks a month. But this person you need to see every day, 1800 bucks a month. And you're like, oh, it can't be 1800 every time. Because if you give this guy the same thing you're giving this guy, he, he leaves. He becomes homeless because he doesn't want you all over his business. He can, he can live a different way. So we also fall into these habits of what's reimbursable. And we keep giving everyone things that are reimbursable. So until you become severely mentally ill for in many states, you can't get any service. And unless you stay severely mentally ill, you can't keep the service that is helping you. So we've set these things up and we've kind of set up, you really need to fail bad. Things we do in housing, we make you lose your house before we help you. And in fact, you've got to be out of your house for a period of time before you qualify for things. You have to be at a sufficient level of being destitute before we will provide you with resources. Right. Instead of giving someone a little help, because again, homelessness, it affects your job, it affects your family, it affects everything in your life, and you don't recover from it. It's a traumatic, yeah. traumatic thing. And if we would just spend as much effort doing this, and part of this is at some point in our life, we started expecting the government to take over. And the stuff we used to do as a country, as people in a country, Americans are extremely generous people. But we started thinking, well, I'm already paying taxes, the government's doing it. So I'm not gonna donate to this type of stuff and I'm not gonna help out and I'm not gonna show up for this. And while we have some of it going, we don't have enough of it going on. And that's really the critical issue because you have to know people to help people.
I love your characterization of the Medicaid program as a medical program. Don't disagree with that at all. So much of what I know people like you and me and Megan have been trying to do over the last number of years is say, okay, it is a medical program, but as a means of making that medical program more sustainable and efficient, there's all this other stuff we can be doing up here before we have to activate the most expensive, disruptive parts of that medical program. I've always felt like one of the biggest challenges in making that pivot is that we have jammed the incentive structure into one-year enrollment cycles, one-year underwriting cycles. My sense is that, I'm just going to be very illustrative because I know this isn't a real policy option, but let's say members on a compulsory basis, you know, absent some exemptions, had to remain with a plan for three years, five years, seven years. And that plan, that MCO, is now looking at the horizon of that person and they're saying, well, my best bet to be not spending more than I've budgeted for that individual, that family, is to invest in their mental health, to help them stay in their house, to get them food. So in years one and two, I'm going to I'm gonna put the resources in that will, will provide this person with a stable set of circumstances. And my, the bet is, number one, it's going to mitigate the odds of type 2 diabetes, CKD, hypertension. Two, might provide a set of circumstances that allow them to be more productive, maybe to transition out of Medicaid, so on and so on. I don't have to go down all the list of things. The punchline, Doug, is that this one-year underwriting cycle seems to just be anathema across the board, but it feels especially to be the case in Medicaid. And are there ways to shift the incentive structure that don't require major paternalism by the state, but can be more deferential to markets and let markets do what they can do well sometimes? You're exactly right. Health is a long-term deal. And part of our problem is we don't we don't cure things in one-year cycles, we, particularly that's endemic right. to what's going on. On the other side of this, unfortunately, so let's talk about oxymoron. So what's an oxymoron in this case? We're taking our most vulnerable citizens and we're basically going to a for-profit company and say, be good to them. I think if we could keep people in a, a single system for 20 years, that's wonderful. But if I did that for managed care, I'll tell you what would happen. 19 years, they'd get nothing. And in the last year, because, oh, man, renewal's coming up and I got to explain to the state what I really did, mm-hmm. suddenly I'd spend some money. But by then, I'd, I've screwed the person over, you know, for 19 years. And so we, we have to have more. And part of what we have mm-hmm. to have more about is we have to quit measuring just the medical. So, we, you know, if you think about all the measurements we use, you know, they're, they're related to, did you get that lab test? What's the lab value? What's this? What's that? When really, if you step back and say, what do we really want? Well, you know what? We'd really like this person not to be involved with the justice system. And we can measure that. We know how many times everyone was involved in the justice system. So why don't we put that on, on the Medicaid guys and say, look, we're going to measure this. We want Johnny and Jill to go to school more days. So, And we have that information. We have attendance records. Why don't we measure that? Why don't we tell the MCO, you know what? Here's what we're going to rank you on. And this is how you're going to keep your contract or not keep your contract on things like this, things that matter. So... You're back at HMA. You've got a job now that's taking you, you know, across the country. So you've got your time in Indiana. You've got your time in Illinois. And now you're seeing you know, all these programs with all the different things your, your company is doing across the board. What have you learned in other parts of the country that you think could be accretive to our state and Medicaid? And what, what have you kind of learned where, where you look at Illinois and you think, oh, we actually nailed that. We're good at that. Well, I, th- I think the recent legislation that passed on nursing homes is going to make a real change. It's early yet to see it, but I think that's, I think you're ahead of the curve, ahead of all. Every state is trying to figure out 
how do we make nursing homes better? Now, part of the problem is nursing homes were a big target in the pandemic. The reality of that is, though, we never measured community health services. We don't know how many people died in the community. We don't track that. So they may have actually done better than anywhere else. We don't know. But because they had a large group right there that was the age group that suffered the most in the pandemic, they took a black eye. Oh, some of the things they did was terrible, but some of it was related to workforce. The workers brought it in. Well, the workers, to make a living, had to work at five different places. They brought it in. There was no way to stop that. But I think some of the things that Illinois is doing is, is moving them along there. I think this recent waiver they're working on that's with the feds will put them right on par with California in terms of uh, what they're going to be able to do in jail and prison health. You know, be able to go in for 90 days and, and start providing that and then help them smoothly move in back into society. I mean, part of what our problem is, if I let you out at two o'clock in the morning in a bad neighborhood with no medications and no way to get them, what do I think is going to happen? I should see you back in jail the next morning because you probably are going to do something because you have to. So I think that's there. What I, what I think is there's still too much institutionalization in Illinois compared to what I see around the country. We have to invest a little bit more in that. Uh, I think we really need to watch closely the California waiver, the CalAIM. I think we have to really watch the other thing that's going on there. They have a, a thing they're looking at where they will be able to force people to take medications, the medications that they need on the behavioral health side. It's an interesting experience. On the one side, you would say that's a violation of their civil rights. On the other side, if you work with them a lot, it's almost tragic to see yeah. that people don't yeah. take their medication and could have a really good life if they do and, and can't function if they don't. And once they stop, then it's hard to get back. So that's a real interesting. And it's, it's surprising it's happening in California, which is a big civil liberty state. And so that's that, I think, is really interesting. I think the issue, the other issue is you have to meet people where they are. So, so the other thing I see is things that work in one state will not always work in another state because the people themselves are different in that state. Their expectations. What somebody thinks is reasonable health care in Alabama isn't the same as Massachusetts. And so it's never going to be an, a national thing. I think the other thing that should be considered that I think is working in a lot of other states is this concept of a super agency. So mm -hmm. in, in some states, what you have is you have a super agency. In that agency, you have Medicaid. But you also have behavioral health, you also have long-term, you have aging services, you have everything there. It makes everyone talk together. In the best states, how it works is, okay, everything is gonna eventually try to go through Medicaid. Medicaid's gonna tell people. But what Medicaid is working on is they're the financing gurus. You let the behavioral health people say, this is state-of-the-art behavioral health. Then you let the Medicaid people say, okay, here's how That's we how can fund that. And the Medicaid people don't try to guess what the right thing is. They let the behavioral health people say what the right thing is. They let the aging people say what the right thing is. They help the, the people with IDD expertise tell them what the right thing is. And then they figure out how to pay for it. That's really the perfect, in my mind, the perfect world because Medicaid is a financing thing. It's, to some extent, it's your insurance company. And, and that's what they're good at. And do they have some good clinical people? Yes, but that's not their primary function in most places. They gotta figure out how to deal with the federal government. These other people, their primary function may be that, but if someone at Medicaid can say, if you're telling me this is the best possible care and we don't have it, but this is the best, this makes the difference, I will figure out how to fund it. That's my job, to figure out how to fund mm -hmm. it. I think we'll get farther. I think we'll do better. And I think we can get more holistic because the other part of this is, again, getting the behavioral health people to understand and the physical health people, look, we're going to give $10 more PMPM PM to the behavioral health people because we're going to save 100 bucks over here. And so we've got to get it all together where people say, now we don't need to worry about who saved it, who did do this or that. Let's look globally. What do we need to be doing um, to get where we want to go? And, and then I think we need to even in our city, you know, Illinois has, you know, has Chicago. Sometimes Chicago is doing their own thing. 
And sometimes it's good, but it's, it's duplicative or actually it, it creates friction with what the state's trying to do. And you don't want to take that away from anyone, but at some point, if they would coordinate, again, the money would go farther. And the coordination, because it's really confusing. I, the thing I worry about community health workers is, it's great if I have one who's helping me. If I end up with five, because this group's got a community, and that group's got a, what the heck? One, they're driving me crazy. There's five of them calling me all the time. <laughs> and then two, what if they don't agree on what I'm supposed to be doing? Now I'm really confused. And and they're each looking at whoever they're connected with is telling them they should be looking at. And so you're just the person sitting there saying, wait a second, yesterday they told me I needed to do this. Today they told me I needed to do this over here. <sighs> you know, and I still need to find food. And I'm not sure where I'm sleeping tonight. What's your best advice for people that are moving through the transformation over the next five years to be more collaborative with the obviously talking to the MCOs? You know, everybody's really trying... I think the goal is for each of these groups to really be in some sort of value-based contracting. Like, I think that's the only solution, depending on what it is, to really incentivize and make sure that they have sustainability. I'm curious if that's your sort of silver bullet as well, or if there's other things, you know, all of them are very different in what they're trying to achieve too. So this was not, this This was what the legislature turned transformation into. This is not anything like transformation yeah. was starting to be, but Medicaid wanted it to. This was all, well, I need to get, these guys some money. And I need to get these guys some money. I need to get these guys some money. And it needs to be balanced in a very meticulous way. Right. So and it's and it's not balanced. Need... I mean, one of the best proposals I saw for transformation didn't get funded at all. It was in a rural community and they had very significant transformation. It was real transformation. Is it transformation to add behavioral health beds? Everyone's adding behavioral health beds. You know what? They're not full. They're not full. A bunch of them are at 50%. Some are at 10%. And we're adding behavioral health beds. Now, we don't do a good job on the outpatient, which is what really people really need, but we're adding behavioral health beds up the wazoo. Because guess what? The state pays really well for behavioral health beds. So everyone wants to add them. And it's kind of like, well, if we look around, if your current census is 47% in behavioral health, you're gonna add 20 beds. You've got 20 empty beds right now. And the guy across the street is adding 20 beds and he's got 20 empty beds. And the guy down there only has 13 patients and he's got 40 beds. And meanwhile, in between, three families are losing their house. Right. Well, and I think it's contradictory of like what the agenda is for the city and the state with being trauma-informed and a lot of the like sort of upstream preventative things that people are trying to accomplish so that eventually we wouldn't even even need these beds so why are they so no, i don't disagree with you but i also think even some of this you know the violent stuff you know let's be honest we need to put all that money into jobs you know what we're going to have violence if people don't have a decent job and we used to manufacture lots of things there are lots of good paying chicago jobs in these neighborhoods and they're all gone and we need to figure that out because we can do all this crap with and trauma-informed is good i don't want to say it isn't but you know what Let's try to get out of the trauma business. I mean, my God, yeah. what are we doing here? What are we doing here indeed, Doug? What are we doing here? There is undoubtedly significant work ahead for our city, state, and country. And HC3 remains committed to fostering ongoing discussions to address these issues. We are dedicated to amplifying the efforts of our remarkable community partners who are executing impactful plans and fostering positive change that could lead to the revolutionary transformation that Doug and all of us hope to see. The HC3 podcast is a production of Third Horizon Strategies. Associate producers are Megan Phillip and Topher Rasmussen. Executive producer is David Smith. The music is by Don Finter. 
help others find our show by leaving a review and a comment. For more information about the Healthcare Council of Chicago, please visit our website, www.hc3.health, or drop an email to meghan at hc3.health. Lastly, we want to express our appreciation to the incredible community organizations who have tirelessly devoted themselves to the betterment of the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. We'll see you next time.